Welcome back to the show, friends. Today on Radical Health Radio, I had Hannah Frankman in the studio. Hannah Frankman is a homeschooling expert. She can highlight very well some of the issues with the industrialized schooling complex. She is the face behind the huge Twitter account called Rebel Educator, where she spreads the word on empowering people to think about pulling your children out of the industrial schooling complex, to homeschool them, to educate them, to provide you as the parent or as the educator with resources. We hear about Hannah's story, and she was fully homeschooled her entire life. We hear about the challenges of that, but the benefits of that, what it's afforded her as an entrepreneur. And you will see that Hannah is a very sharp individual. She's got some really hard-hitting facts about the schooling system and some of its cracks and its increasing failing metrics and some potential solutions too. So this is a really fun chat and uh, that's it. Let's dive into the show. What is up, you radical health seeker? Welcome back to the show. I have a special guest in studio with us today. This is Hannah Frankman. She is a advocate for homeschooling. She rebels against the industrial schooling complex. And before I introduce Hannah and let her tell her story, I just want to explain to the listener my thought process for bringing you on, Hannah, because it might seem a little weird at first to bring on an education homeschooling specialist onto a health podcast. But I think the thing we're trying to do here with this whole message is re-educate how we think about the whole food system in general. And that means we've got to teach people how to think again. And I think one of the biggest injuries around the school system is it doesn't teach us how to think. It tells us what to think. So that's the motivation for this podcast. Hannah's awesome. I've listened to her on a few shows and I'm super excited to have you in the studio. How's your day going? Welcome. The floor is yours. Thank you so much. My day has been great. It's better because I'm here. Your place is awesome. I'm super excited to have this conversation with you today. I think your motivation is spot on teaching people how to think. I also think education is about raising a whole human into Mm. adulthood, helping nurture them into adulthood. And there are a lot of pieces besides just memorizing your times tables that are important for that, that people forget. So I think this is a super aligned conversation to have. Heck yeah. Let's do it. And tell us then, who is Hannah? Because you were homeschooled. Like, all your life pretty much, right? So give us the story. Tell us a little bit. Bring us up to speed. What's going on? Yeah. So I am a homeschool graduate. I was homeschooled first through 12th grade. I went to a Montessori-inspired preschool and kindergarten. But then like basically all of my grade school years were spent homeschooled. I grew up uh, on some acreage in rural Pennsylvania on a dirt road with farms on three sides. And the fourth side was full of trees, so you couldn't see the neighbors. Mm. I barely wore shoes. It was amazing. We had gardens and woods outside to play in. My sister and I spent most of our childhood outside or reading books. Mm. Uh, because when you're homeschooled, it really doesn't take that much time to actually complete your schoolwork. Mm. So, yeah, that was I had an amazing amazing childhood growing up homeschooled uh my elementary years were very waldorf inspired for Mm -hmm. those who are familiar it's a very kind of artistically based education so uh waldorf education is very beautiful you spend a lot of time using materials like they don't use have plastic in their classrooms it's all wood and wool Mm. and silk and their crayons are made of beeswax and you do these lesson books where you write essays and then you illustrate them with the beeswax crayons or watercolors it's very beautiful So that was my elementary education. My high school education was super self-directed. I basically decided what I was going to learn, put together my own curriculum, gave myself my own assignments and 
grades, like what are grades mm. when you're homeschooling, but, you know, kind of gave myself my own bar that I was intending to pass, um, which was also amazing. And by the time I graduated from high school, I decided I had no interest in going to college because it felt like a step backwards and I'd already learned how to learn on my own anyway. So I got into the alternative education space instead. And that's where I've been ever since. And the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> that's fascinating because I think, you know, we're going to get into some common misconceptions and myths about homeschooling. But I think one of the ones that probably exists the most is, sure, go and do your homeschooling thing, but you, you can't be successful if you don't go to school, right? What are you going to do without that piece of paper and that degree or whatever? So, you know, it's you, you seem like a pretty put together person. You don't seem like a socially awkward freak. You I'm seem faking like, it great. Okay, awesome. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> But you're an entrepreneur, right? Like a yeah. business person, a person that's got her teeth into things that she's passionate about. So let's start there. What, what's it been like kind of integrating into the normal world? Have you always chose the entrepreneurial path because you were escape the matrix, let's call it pretty early. And what kind of life does that set you up for? Yeah, that's such an enormous question. There's so much to say about this. The first tweet I ever wrote that went viral, uh, this was under a year and a half ago. So it's been the past year and a half have been quite a journey with the Twitter front. We'll probably mm -hmm. talk about that later. But uh, I, the first tweet that ever really exploded, I said something along the lines of, uh, you know, people think that homeschoolers are going to have trouble landing jobs, but I got my first three jobs because I was homeschooled. Um, so my very first job I worked on an organic vegetable farm and orchard uh, in my hometown and my bosses had homeschooled their son. And so they mm. were very favorable towards homeschoolers. And I started working my junior year of high school and it's a farm. So you're working you know, daylight hours. You start at like seven, you work till 3.30 or whatever. And I was able to work during school time because I was homeschooled. Mm -hmm. So they hired me. Uh, I ended up working there for three seasons. It was amazing. Uh, and then my second job, I worked for another local business and like a farm supply store. And they you know, I went in for an interview and told them I'd been homeschooled and they said, oh, we love homeschoolers. Mm. And they hired me almost immediately. And then my third real job was working for the startup apprenticeship program called Praxis, where I worked for years. That was really where I got my foot in the door in the education space. Mm. Um, I basically decided I was going to skip college and I wanted to figure out how to be successful without a college degree. So my solution to this problem was to go work for the company that was teaching people how to be successful without college degrees. Uh, and normally, you know, they charge you to go through the program, but I got them to pay me as an intern instead to learn all the same stuff. Look at you. Um, and they loved homeschoolers because mm. they loved the alternative education space. So they were really excited to work with me. Um, so being homeschooled for me was a huge asset because homeschoolers have a much better reputation than people think they do. But I had also learned a number of skills being homeschooled that translate very organically into the working world. So I was, you know, I knew how to be self-directed. I knew mm. how to be a self-starter because there's no classroom structure forcing me to do things at a certain time the way when you're in public school, you really don't have to have any innate motivation at all. You can just listen to the bells and go where you're told and fill out the paper and move on to the next thing. And you don't really have to be a self-starter. Mm -hmm. So I learned a lot of self-direction, a lot of personal responsibility really early on, which is really helpful. Um, and then when you're homeschooling, a lot of the things that you're doing are translated. You're translating it in real time into the real world. Yeah. So I started businesses when I was in middle school. I was working on 
projects I started and ran, like writing groups when I got really into writing. I started a book club at my library when I wanted to talk to other kids about the books I was reading. So I had all of this experience organizing things, coordinating things, managing like little operations that mm. I was running. And so I was, I had a pretty robust portfolio of what you would in, you know, the traditional path consider to be real world experiences. To me, they were just different ways. I was just learning, but it was applied learning to the real world. But all of those things translated very nicely to being able to do things effectively in the real world, but also get money from people mm -hmm. for doing them. Um, so I feel like as I've gone through my 20s, I'm 26 now, so I've been working for a little while at this point, and I feel like I'm still discovering ways that homeschooling made me different from mm -hmm. the norm and ways that I've, like my mindset and my just understanding of how the world works because of being homeschooled is an asset to me in ways that is just I've just deviated from how people think about the world. I feel like I'm still discovering ways that my thinking yeah. is a little bit different. But being very entrepreneurial, like you said, I'm running a few different projects now. I've been an entrepreneur for a while. I really like it. Uh, and it's just sort of a natural way of being to me because I grew up in an environment where if you have an idea, you just go try the thing and yeah. you see what types of results you can get and you rinse and repeat and iterate on what you've done. And so it's just second nature to me to live like that. And it took me a while to realize that it's not second nature for everybody. Bingo. Yeah. I think like reflecting on what you just said though, this just real world application of skills is so big. And that's, I was thinking, why would educate, like, why would employers rather see a homeschool and go, Oh, I love homeschoolers. And, and you answered the question beautifully because I reflect on my journey and my education begun after I'd finished education. Like I did all of the mental masturbation education. I got the certificates and stuff, but like my real education begun at 23 when I graduated and left. And then I was like, oh, imagine if I'd have been doing actual real world self-leadership, motivation, mindset, problem solving, practical solutions for the last 10 years. I'd have been way further ahead. And I don't know too many people personally that are homeschooled, but I can think of four off the top of my head. Cade, our video producer here that puts this beautiful podcast together is homeschooled. Yourself, I have a personal mentor that was homeschooled. Some of the most like brilliant people that I've met. And it's just interesting because it's such a rarity because it's so pervasive in our culture that school is just what you do. And I think it's really inspiring what you do in trying to re-educate and tell that story, which kind of segues nicely into how you are now telling that story, empowering people and pointing out some of this with your Twitter account that you said only a year and a half old and grown to 110 plus thousand followers because it's clearly poking something in the zeitgeist. You're clearly probably simultaneously triggering and also empowering and having people just ask questions. So tell me the story about Rebel Educator and this whole like Twitter thing and what's going on there. Yeah. So I started loosely doing education commentary pretty much as soon as I started working because I always wanted to be a writer. Hmm. So I got involved with some nonprofits and think tanks that I could publish with. I was writing for the blog at Praxis, this apprenticeship program I was working for. Uh, I started my own blog pretty early on and I just felt like this real need to tell my story because I remember my parents when I was little talking about the stories of homeschoolers that they'd seen as a kind of a model, not necessarily for what they wanted to do strategically, but as a model of the overall success of the paradigm. Like you mm -hmm. can go through this non-traditional route and turn out just fine. Uh, 
I don't really want to say normal because the point isn't really normal. See, like right. if you wanted your kid to be normal, you'd send them to school. You don't right. want them to be perfectly normal, but you do want them to be highly functional and successful. And I would argue very self-contained in their ability to go and make what they want happen out of their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I just really wanted to tell my story and say, hey, look, you know, I, this, this is what my experience was like. It feels like one of the best things that ever happened to me. And I'm doing just fine now. And here's how I'm kind of navigating the world as an adult. Um, And so I, about two and a half years ago, I quit my full-time startup job. Uh, I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't really want to start on anything full-time again until I felt just a deep conviction that this was the thing I wanted to be doing. I had, I was nomading at the time. I was like, you know, I don't really have fixed expenses. I can just kind of wing it until I figure out what I want to do. Um, And the thing that kept coming up was talking about education Mm -hmm. and a few different people had contracted me to do some like marketing work or or development work for their projects um but i just felt like something like rebel educator needed to exist they're really the more i talked to families the more i realized that people just didn't know what to do with their kids they knew on an intuitive level that something was broken and Mm. not right about the education system but they couldn't quite put their finger on what it was and they didn't fully trust their intuition about it because well everybody else is sending their kid there so it must be okay right like am i just crazy and the people who did trust their intuitions about it and started digging in and seeing that something was really wrong and rotten here they didn't know what else to do they didn't mm-hmm. know where to go next what to do with this information where to start and i think You know, obviously 2020 was kind of a chaotic year on many fronts, but one of the, I would argue, silver linings of what happened when everything shut down is that all of the families had their kids at home all day and the kids brought school home. And granted, what happens in a classroom does not translate well onto Zoom. So it was kind of a fiasco to begin with. But parents got to see on Zoom school in real time what was supposed to be happening in the classroom. And a lot of parents were pretty horrified by the content or lack thereof that was being communicated to their kids, uh, the level of instruction. And I think a lot of parents had this moment of reckoning where they'd been able to send their kids to school. They didn't know exactly what happened in these mysterious cinder block boxes Mm -hmm. all day, but their kids seemed to be progressing just fine through the grade levels. Their report cards were coming back with all A's. Uh, The kids were taken care of when they were at work all day. Well, the parents were at work all day. And so they never really had to stop and examine the quality of what was occurring on a daily and weekly basis. Mm -hmm. And when they saw that in real time, I think a lot of parents said, well, like now that I've seen it, I can't unsee it. And I have to figure out something better. And so I started Rebel Educator in May of 2022. There was still a lot of chaos around the public school system post-pandemic. There still is. Mm-hmm. Um, but also in the two-ish years before I started Rebel Educator, but you know, post the schools shutting down for the first time, a lot of really exciting projects had started to emerge mm-hmm. and built traction. So there are a ton of really interesting alternative schools being built, uh, networks of alternative schools, uh, like independent micro schools that are being started in different communities where somebody's just starting a school in their living room yeah. for the local kids and it's built around a certain educational philosophy and parents can send their kids there. Um, 
different online options have been emerging that are really exciting. And the homeschooling movement just went through the roof. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the highest homeschooling numbers we've seen by a long shot since the public school system was first conceived. And so there was just this huge wave of momentum being built and people were hungry for it. And so I was like, well, you know, how can I be useful here? How can mm -hmm. I help? Um, and talking about this stuff, like there really is no, when you think about public schools, it's this very unified front. You have these disparate schools in different locations, but they're all under, they're all nested under the umbrella of the public school system. Mm -hmm. And obviously they all operate as a system. So it's a little more natural for them to be all nested under one umbrella. But you've got this huge public school movement over here, which has this huge cultural weight and it has the momentum of generations behind it. And then you have the alternative school movement that people are very hungry for, mm -hmm. but it's painfully scattershot. You've got this weird little hippie school over here, mm -hmm. and then you got this super funky classical program overall, like on the internet somewhere. And then in like the next town over, you've got this like weird program where the kids are just sitting around having Socratic debates all day mm -hmm. and nobody really understands how this translates into lifetime success. And then you've got the just like disgruntled homeschooling families mixed in and nobody can like quite agree on the messaging and when you sit down and you talk to these people they're all unified by a very cohesive philosophy they agree with each other about most things mm -hmm. even when you look at because there's this whole spectrum when you think about alternative education there's the like super anarchistic and radical unschoolers on one side where it's just like our kids can literally do whatever they mm -hmm. want if they want to play video games all day who am i to tell them no um, I'm, I'm exaggerating this a little bit. Like I have a lot of empathy for unschoolers and I've seen some amazing unschool successes, but just for the sake of the, you know, drawing the slightly caricaturized spectrum here, the unschoolers on one side. And then on the other side, you have the super rigid classical educators where it's like, we need to, our kids to read these exact classics in this exact order and have these exact discussions about them. And then there's this whole spectrum mm -hmm. of different pedagogical philosophies in between the two points and i think it looks very disparate and varied but when you talk even when you talk to people on the two ends of the spectrum they have more in common than they don't and that's very inobvious to the outside observer mm. so it feels like you have public school and then you've got a million other things and really you have public school or like institutional education as i like to call it and then you have the people who want like a child centric education that really has the the child's experience at the core, not the convenience of the institution, the convenience yeah. of the state, the convenience of the parents who need to work, uh, the convenience of the teachers unions all stacked as priorities above the experience of the individual child. Mm. And all of these things can be very neatly unified. I think I like to think of the education movement right now as it's kind of like colonial america before the continental congress was established so you've got these really disgruntled dissidents up in boston who are just like really mad at the british army and then you've got these people down in like coastal south carolina who are upset for other mm -hmm. reasons but there's no clear unification and then all of a sudden everybody comes together and it's like oh we all at the end of the day like, we can't agree on everything but at the end of the day we all want roughly the same thing which is separation from the british monarch mm. so we can all unify forces and fight against this and when you're unified you realize wow there's actually like a really big movement here and i feel like the education movement's kind of in the same place right yeah. now and so 
I want Rebel Educator to be a part of that unification process mm. where it's like, if we all come together, we're actually very strong and we have a lot to say and it's a very clear cut other option for parents yeah. to find. Yeah. What a beautiful synopsis. I love that, that those stories and even shout out to the, uh, the British colony. No, sorry. sorry, <laughs> sorry. My people, my people. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Okay, we're friends again. <laughs> thank you, thank you. What, what I think as well as you're describing that too is the homeschooling, whichever branch of homeschooling they fall under, it actually should ultimately serve benefit the public because the public schooling system because it's giving some sense of competition it's empowering some sense of choice for the parents they don't they now start to see a potential and i think people forget this a lot of the time when you're sending your kids to the industrialized education system you're paying for that you're paying for it in your taxes and what are you getting as a result you know I, if you look at trends and what is happening in terms of mental health and performance outcomes the school experiment is failing. I think you can objectively state that as a truth. I don't even think that's a subjective opinion anymore. Does it fail everybody? No. But does it fail many? Yes. And with this homeschooling movement, you actually prop something up as a, as a parallel structure, a system, an ideal to force that to adapt or die, which is the nature of life. And because there's so much going on here, I think in order to understand these parallel systems and new choices, we've almost got to go back to the beginning. So I'm curious about the birthplace if you will or the time frame ish of the you know educational industrial complex and and you know what it was intended for because it seems to me like it hasn't really evolved with the times or the needs of the people in school yeah the educate the evolution of education throughout history is a very strange beast we've gone like histo ever since the inception of organized and systematized education like maybe 2500 years ago in greece um we've had this weird phenomenon has occurred where we sort of hold on to old traditions way longer than they're useful. Like the education system in colonial America, the way in which we educated kids was a bit antiqu antiquated. Mm -hmm. And yet we didn't really move the norms forward until the mid 1800s or the early 20th century. And even then, I mean, there's there's a lot to say about this. I think that the system that was put in place was very fundamentally broken to begin with. It's certainly outdated now. Mm -hmm. But so a little bit of backstory on education in America specifically. Um, so in colonial America and revolutionary era America, our literacy rates were actually very high. Um, you know, obviously the way that they classified literacy rates were very different because people were grouped into there was, you know, slaves and there were like women weren't educated in the same way. So it's a little harder to, to get, you know, like really clean cut data. They weren't just counting the population mm -hmm. at large. But among the population that was expected to be educated, the literacy rates were pretty comparable to what they are today, which is a very strange thing to think about. And then when you start assessing the quality of that literacy, it's very easy to argue that it was actually higher because like think about the federalist papers that were written to convince the population that the constitution should be ratified these papers are now considered to be difficult college level reading they are inaccessible to the average mm. american they were published in just mainstream periodicals for the average layman's consumption and that was something that people were just comfortable reading and digesting and understanding and there's just no way you could conceive of something of that level of both, you know, difficulty of the actual language, but also complexity of ideas being communicated by said language 
there's no way that that would be mm -hmm. published and accessible to the average layperson today. Um, so our literacy rates were quite high. We had no formalized school system at all. It was a combination of parochial schools, uh, like localized schools, and then a lot of kids were learning at home. Um, a lot of really famous historical figures were primarily educated at home. If you think of Laura Ingalls, Ingalls Wilder, for example, that's one of my favorite examples from my childhood. I read her books over and over until they were in tatters. Most of her education was she was on the prairie and her mom was teaching her with a chalkboard and mm -hmm. the primer books that they had for reading, learning how to read. And that was all they had. And she became a world famous writer as an adult. And so for the early portion of American history, education was very unstandardized and we were doing just fine. And then we had in like the mid 1800s, we had this huge influx of immigrants coming into America uh, from different cultures that did not get along, different religious backgrounds, different countries. Um, and especially in the Northeast, there was this just melting pot of everything from escaped slaves from the South to, uh, you know, like the Irish and the Italians not getting along in Boston. You had the Catholics, the Protestants, like nobody could see eye mm. to eye. It was pretty tumultuous. And simultaneously, we had this very rapidly industrializing world where we had types of jobs that had not existed before uh, operating at a level of operational scale that we had not seen before. Mm. And so you needed people who could work together very cleanly and organically and efficiently to make these big industrial systems work. And so the education system as we know it today was first conceived by a guy named Horace Mann who went to Prussia, which was, uh, you know, Prussia was very good at conquering other countries and subjugating them under the Prussian crown. And so they had an education system that they took and put in place in these newly conquered lands that was intended to take the children of the conquered populace and teach them to be good Prussians. Hmm. And it was a, you know, we conquered land to military pipeline. So the ideal was for these kids to grow up to be soldiers mm -hmm. who could then go conquer new lands. It was like a nice little looping system. Um, and Horace Mann said, wow, this is amazing. This works so well. We need this in America to help homogenize all of these different groups that are coming in. And so the idea for the public education system was born. The intent was very clearly to raise a good citizenry that is industrious and knows how to work. There were a lot of like very Protestant values baked into it um, and to raise a population that is able to fit the different economic needs of our very rapidly industrializing society. Mm -hmm. So we like it, it was it was very explicitly a social engineering experiment where, you know, let's see if we can actually consistently produce X amount of farmers, Y amount of longshoremen, Z amount of foundry operators on a yearly basis to meet our predicted needs mm -hmm. in the economy. And it was backed by a lot of titans of industry like the Ro Rockefellers, Rockefellers and the Carnegies. Um, and there are lots of different ways that you can read that. People take a lot of different, they have a lot of different opinions about the morality or lack thereof mm. of all of this. But it was very explicitly intended to be a system that 
like it was not intended to to cultivate the creativity and the intellectual genius of these children. It was very explicitly stated. If you go back and you read through the, the writings of the people who built the system, they thought they had enough potential poets and artists and politicians in the families of the elites who would mm. probably going to be going to private schools anyway. So public school didn't need like these kids didn't need to trouble themselves with that. They just yeah. needed to learn how to be good workers and handle the and this is a direct quote, the humble problems of their lives. They didn't mm. have to worry about, you know, complicated things like political philosophy at too deep of a level. And so it was very much intended to create people who weren't who weren't spending lots of time reading the great books and thinking deeply about them. You know, like maybe the the top of the class would be exposed to those things and sort of piped into Ivy League institutions mm. to perhaps become like the up and comers in the sort of like intellectual class. But mostly the intention was to raise good workers, which there's, you know, a, a positive practical side to that, right. too. Like, of course, you want to raise children who can be productive and can make a living for themselves and sustain themselves. But the sort of systematized approach to just sh shut off kids' curiosities about the things that might be very innately interesting to them, like learning art, uh, which, you know, might come at the expense of their ability to be a good foundry worker. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, like you can't have a coal miner who's who's worried about like, I can't wait to get home to read my Shakespeare like no. that. They're just distracted. They're not good at their job anymore. Um, there's a very dark underbelly to it, whether intentional or not. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say that the the consequences of this have been quite catastrophic for the intellectual capacity of our country. Like we used to read things like the Federalist Papers as lay people coming back from our job, like making barrels or cobbling shoes or whatever. And now the like 54% of our uh, population can't read at a sixth grade level. Like it's, wow. it's terrible. The results are abysmal. Wow. That's a, that's, that's pretty crazy when you phrase it in that way. And I think one of the things that, you know, I, I felt through my education experience is, is a lack of that curiosity. Like it seems that it was purely built to feed the machine, not the soul, feed the machine, not the curiosity. I was having a think the other day in prep for this conversation. Do I remember ever once during my education system being asked, what do you think? And I don't think I was ever asked that question. I don't think anybody genuinely said, what do you think, Steve? I just think it was, this is the way it is. And you can see the industrious mentality in that. And like you said, you know, there's a balancing act here. We have systems that require those industrious workers, but if we sacrifice the creative in, in everyone, the, the, the mysterious, the soul, the muse, whatever you want to call it, what does that do to us as people? You know, and this is, this is part of now saying, uh, having the information, I guess, to make an empowered choice to potentially say, I don't want that for me. I don't want that for my children. We shouldn't want that for our children or our future. So we'll lay the smack down and either force public schools to change or adapt, or we'll fix it ourselves at a grassroots level. So the one thing I wanted to, to put in the conversation here is this idea of like homeschooling seen as like a privilege almost because you, you mentioned it a little bit. I have to work. I have to go to work. What am I supposed to do with my kid? I can't just homeschool my kid all day and, you know, spend this time with them because I've got to go make the money to pay the bills, et cetera. So what, that's obviously a big part of this question too. What do you say to people? That, well, that's easy for you to say, Hannah, you know, I have three kids and I've got to work. Like what can we do? We're kind of stuck in this system, even if we can acknowledge that it's broken and I still can't get out of it. Well, first of all, I absolutely abhor the word privilege because it's so victimizing. It's mm. it's not it's so disempowering 
well, you just have this privilege, so I can't solve this mm -hmm. problem. I don't have any patience for that. It's like, no, if you actually care, you can solve the problem. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard. It's really hard. I've watched so many families make enormous sacrifices to homeschool their children. My parents drove old vehicles and when one vehicle stopped working, they like, you know, they weren't in a hurry to replace it. They had because my dad was the only one working because my mom was a stay at home mom homeschooling us. Um, I've watched parents, you know, families band together to share responsibilities of childcare so that the moms could overlay their work schedules so that one of them at a time was working, but they had the, the both families had the dual income. I know a homeschooling mom who she was a single mother and she found a job where she was allowed to bring her kids into the office. She like the, her boss was homeschooling friendly and let her bring the kids in and she could work all day and the kids could be working on their school and the kids got an amazing education because they got to learn from all of the people in her office and learn how the real world works mm -hmm. and they're both you know in their 20s now absolutely thriving really very entrepreneurial no surprise there uh like both successfully building careers um if you want to figure out how to homeschool your children you can absolutely make it happen and it's just a matter of prioritization it's yeah. not a privilege thing it's a we want to drive two cars and we want to go mm. on the nice vacation this summer and we want the bigger house um you know historically people have had we went we lived in a much poorer world overall people had tons of kids and they figured out it's kind of like the argument well, i don't have enough money to have children in the first place mm. it's like you just have a quality of life standard that you're not willing to give yeah. up but you know, do you really care more about your nice new Volvo than you do about the education of your child? Like, I is that actually more important? I want steering wheel, though. I want my heated seats. Yeah, but do you want a child <laughs> that can think? Like, you yes. know, you yes. gotta, you gotta actually, you gotta really look at that. It's an uncomfortable set of questions to it ask, is. both because of the the lifestyle sacrifices that you have to make, but also once you take responsibility for your kid's education, that's really scary. Yeah. Now you're the one if if your kid isn't successful is it your fault yeah whereas if your kid's not successful and they went to public school you know they went through the, they went through the system they did all the things they yeah. were supposed to do there's kind of victims of the system at large it's it's a scary thing to look at head on but i don't think it's i i don't think you're i think you have to ask yourself what you prioritize the most because i mean really is that heated steering wheel more important than the quality of your child's childhood and their educational foundation that they're going to take with them for the rest of their lives. Yeah, yeah. That's what we do. We try and ask the difficult questions because there again is a skill that's been lost, like probing, really digging into what's really important. And I love that you brought up this juxtaposition between victimization and radical responsibility because it's everything in life. And mm -hmm. as far as I can see it, Looking in now to the industrialized schooling complex, there seems to be a virus of virtuous victimhood. It seems to be celebrated. It seems to be the thing to be done to point the finger of blaming and complaining and say it's the system and say it's the patriarch or say it's, it's X, Y, and Z instead of saying, you know what? Like you said, things can be really bloody hard. What am I going to do about it? What do I really prioritize? So I think that's a probably a skill that you develop by being self-directed and homeschooled and seeing things a little bit differently. I'm curious, as you've been growing this movement, having conversations, witnessing, uh, you know, the, the work that you're doing, 
what do you think is the primary motivating factor for people choosing to go on their own way? Because I see, I sense that there's a couple of things here. I sense that there's the purely education-based thing, like I don't want my child in this crackpot place that's not doing the things. And I see it almost as like a political movement again, as things have become so politicized. There could be some truth that it's a bit of both. What are you seeing? What trends are you uh, coming across there? I think I think you just hit the nail on the head. So I think that there are I would class I would categorize people who are exiting the public school system in two main buckets. Uh, one are very ideologically driven, so they're moving towards a specific type of education that they want their child to have that they don't think the public system can deliver. Uh, the others are very reactionary. They're running from something mm. that's happening in the system. They don't have a clear conception of what they're moving towards, but they know they don't want this other yeah. thing over here. So I think historically the alternative education movement has been pretty ideologically driven and moving towards because it was such a minority movement. So, you know, you had to really have a conception of what you wanted your child's education to be for it to make sense for you to exit the system. I think over the past maybe five years, it's become very reactionary. I mm -hmm. think a lot of people are running away from whether it's the ideologies being taught in the classroom that parents don't agree with. And if you spend any time on Twitter at all, you've seen viral videos and posts of things that are happening that you're just like, you're like, is this really happening in a class? Like, is this real? Because if it's real, it's very scary. Um, or they're moving away from, you know, the very poor academic standards that their children are being held to. Um, they're moving away from maybe something circumstantial, like their kid's getting really bullied or their mm. kid has to wear masks all day. And my parents like, no, I want my child to have oxygen. I'm going mm. to not have my kid in the classroom anymore. Um, but a lot of, I think the exit is happening now is a little more reactionary. So there are, there are a lot of sub buckets to this too. Like some people it's, uh, you know, religious, a religious drive. So they're either they want their children to have a more usually it's christian mm -hmm. in, in america because that's the predominant religious group but you know it's we want our kids to have like more of a christian education or we don't like this thing being taught in school yeah. that's very antithetical to our values so we're going to pull our child from this um there are people who are very education focused so they and academically focused so they have uh, maybe a pedagogical ideology around how they want their child to be educated um for some people it's more of a lifestyle thing mm. uh, like when you think when you think about it if your your child's five years old when they start kindergarten and they go get on the great big yellow school bus that makes them look absolutely tiny in comparison and they go clamber up the stairs and they get on and they go to this cinder block building all day to hang out with a bunch of other little tiny children mm. and some adult that they're not related to at all and the parents don't see them all day and then they come home and get off the school bus and they're so excited to see mom because they haven't seen her all day and you watch this happening and you're just like where did we decide this was a good idea and normal for a very small child to be separated from their parents for the majority of their waking hours for more days out of the week than not. Like it's mm -hmm. a very strange phenomenon. So I think for some people it's a lifestyle thing too, where they want their kids at home. Um, there are so many different reasons that people exit the system, but I think the towards versus from distinction is particularly important yeah, I like that. because if you're moving towards something, you usually have a pretty good sense of what it is that you want. Yes. If you only know what you don't want, it's really easy to start to replicate a lot of the, the negative sides of what's happening in school back at home. Like yeah. if you just know that you don't want your kid around this bully or you don't want them 
learning about like gender ideology in their second grade classrooms. You're like, you know what? I'm just going to pull my kid out. Like they don't have to know what a pronoun is. They're just totally developmentally inappropriate. They're not ready for this yet. But that's really kind of the only issue that caused me to want to leave school. So I'm just going to kind of replicate everything else that's happening in school at yeah. home. You're missing a lot of the point of what homeschooling can be. Yeah. Um, but so I think I think that's an important one to just be aware of as yeah. a parent. It's if you're running from that's highly justified, but you also want to think about what you're running towards. Yeah, let's talk about that because I think you you hit the nail on the head there. I think running from when you see some of the stuff, you're like, okay, I get it. But if you're not careful about also running towards like what direction are you headed, you could end up lost. You could end up replicating. You just bring school now and put it in your living room and say, I'm homeschooling, but you're just schooling again. Mm -hmm. So this moving away from some of the crazy enough in a, a craziness that we see i think you probably experience more conversations in this space by virtue of what you do just how crazy is it in some of these public schools like you see accounts like libs of tiktok you know posting these just kind of mind-blowing videos like just how prevalent is this stuff just how pervasive is this woke ideology and how it's sneaking into our education system i think it is, and this is an answer coming from someone who is not in a public school classroom on a day-to-day -day basis. So take what I'm about to say yeah. with a grain of salt. My read is that it is less universal than it would appear if you spent five minutes scrolling through libs of TikTok, but it is more pervasive than one would want to believe. Mm. Uh, I have heard so many stories from parents saying, you know, I I discovered that this X, Y, or Z thing was happening in my classroom uh or maybe x is the person we're talking about i don't know like it's you know there's like you know we have a pronouns chart up mm -hmm. on our my kid's classroom and you know we walked in and we said what what is this my child's like six why is this here um i think that it's the momentum of what's happening has accelerated quite a bit over the past few years i think a lot of people don't realize it like i graduated from high school in 2015 um when I walk into a schooling environment, like a high school environment in 2023, I am shocked by how different the cultural feeling is. Like mm. you take away, take out all of the, the sort of instructional side of it, for lack of a better word. Like, you know, nobody's saying a word about anything, any of the woke stuff that lives of TikTok posts about just the feeling of the culture, the way kids interact with each other, the words they use, the way that they dress, the way they do their hair, just like the cultural milieu is so different from what it was eight years ago. And I think if you're not in it on a day-to-day -day basis, it's very easy to miss the fact mm. that it's changed dramatically. I think a lot of people don't realize just how different the culture is and the touchstones for the culture like the things that are normal to make jokes about it not normal to make jokes about it, and the things that it's normal to say are weird versus to just think no that's just like you know it's normal it's just self-expression the 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 goalposts have shifted mm. dramatically um and i think it's also it varies a lot by region on a national level yeah. um so something in rural te texas is going to be very different from something in portland yeah but at the same time, it also it infiltrates even non-traditional schools, um, like even in places that you would think are kind of sheltered from it, like a Montessori school somewhere. Uh, it still crops up. Yeah. So it's it's become very 
omnipresent. Yes. Even if it's just an undercurrent. Yeah. I was surprised actually to hear some of the rules attempted to be implemented by um, things like Waldorf schools, which are Steiner philosophy driven. And, you know, when they started to coerce themselves into some of these norms it was just a big red flag because you're like this is the antithesis of that entire system um but it's supposed to be supposed to be yeah and that's that's kind of sad you know so i'm curious what you think is also playing here in terms of the i want to talk about a little bit of the different ways that schools failing kids in and represent some of the data a little bit you know we see these rising trends of adhd anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, particularly in girls. And then on the boys' side, we see this huge failure of public education anyway, but massively failing boys. A lot of those diagnoses skew towards boys. You know, they seem to be a little less agreeable, a little less conscientious. It's not fitting their system. Like, it's not just school because the world's changed a lot since 2015 too, even just with pervasive tech and social media. Like how much are like, what's this melting pot that's causing a lot of this confusion and trouble and these rising trends we see in like mental health, et cetera. Oh, there's, that's such a big question. It's a big one. There I know. are so <laughs> many factors here. I mean, it's pervasive culturally. It's not just in schools. Yeah. Um, and I think schools are sort of this weird conglomeration of, especially at the high school level you know teenagers are very they they perhaps are the the most on the living edge of what's happening in culture as anybody is yeah. because they're on social media for the first time it's all new to them so their world views are just being impacted at a level that you know somebody who has a decade or two decades or three decades of culture under their belts are less swayed by mm. whatever the current trend is like they're building their raw foundation um and so I think, and also, you know, it's a highly emotional time. So I think a lot of the cultural stuff just sort of gets played out at a level of intensity that's perhaps lacking elsewhere. Mm. Plus, so uh, <laughs> Lenin had a quote. Uh, something, I'm going to butcher this slightly, but it's something along the lines of like, give me a generation of kids and I can like change the entire direction of the culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, it has been a known fact for a very long time by everyone seeking power that if you can get into education and you can get into the children, you can, you might not win over the minds and the hearts of the prevailing generation. But the prevailing generation will die and the young ones will rise up mm -hmm. to take their place. And if you can infiltrate there, they are much easier to win over to the ideologies that you want to communicate to them. And they will come into power believing these things that you wanted them to believe. And so if you, you know, want to instill new paradigms and ways of thinking into a culture, the most effective way is to get into the education system, whether mm -hmm. it's uh, primary and secondary school, whether it's the university system. And so education's always been a bit of a contended uh, target mm -hmm. for people because they can, you know, like, why, why not just teach this to the kids? Uh, right. So I do, I do think it's a very literal, uh, a very literal target for people who want to, like, we have these things that we want to infuse into the culture. However, you know, dark or not dark you want to get about that it might be very innocent in some cases right. but it's like we want we want to teach the children this thing because we believe it 
Um, I think that makes it sticky too. But in terms of like the more the mental health stuff that you reference, because there's a lot here in this question that you just asked me. So I'm going to bounce around a little bit. But I think, you know, there, there really is no more damning thing to look at when you're thinking about the outcomes of the school system. I mean, the academic outcomes are pretty bad. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the the mental health statistics of our children, it's really sobering. Uh, I tweeted a chart recently of uh, the suicide rate throughout the year of kids, uh, high school boys and high school girls, and then like all the data con conglomerated. Um, and there is every like, year over year, there's this big drop over the summer. And then there is a huge spike at the start of the school year. Mm. Also, uh, hospitalizations for um, suicide attempts and self-harm are also, they correspond with the beginning of the week too for kids. So there's this very clear correlation between, and, and people will argue it away. They'll be like, well, like maybe it's seasonal, you know, depression, but seasonal depression does not start like clockwork the, the yeah. week before Labor Day every year. It's still summer. It's, it's the school system that is the culprit here. Um, and, you know, across the board, we have this epidemic of ADHD, um, which that, that one in particular is actually really interesting. And I've talked about this on Twitter a lot. We've written some articles on Rebel Educator about this, that we think that are especially boys who are, you know, primarily the ones diagnosed with ADHD. Uh, we think our, our little boys are broken because they don't want to sit still for eight hours. Crazy and then idea. you stop and think about that statement for a moment and you realize, wait a second, who in their right mind would think they could who'd have the audacity to think they could make a little boy sit still mm -hmm. for eight hours they have so much energy and they want to go do things and break things and build things and then break them again and fight with each other like they want to be having this very embodied experience of figuring out how to be alive in their bodies and mm -hmm. in the world and how to navigate those two things and then you're making them sit down and listen to you drone for hours of course they can't sit still and pay attention it's not the child that's broken and needs a drug it's the system that's yeah. broken but you know it's much easier to just grease the flywheel and prescribe them things that you know just like feed them into the medical system and then you it's just the whole the whole system just keeps subsisting off of itself but really it's the system that's the problem yeah you're articulating a lot of what what i felt actually you know this that was interesting that thing you said about how these uh hospitalizations and suicides would spike around the beginning of the school year or even the beginning of the week i got a memory when you were saying that about when the school holidays were coming to a close i would cry the night before going back to school because i did not want to be there at all and i never enjoyed school and it wasn't because I was particularly not intelligent or anything like that. I was trapped in that system. I just wanted to act out. I wanted to fight and break things and play and laugh. And you're not allowed to do that. And I remember now several times the end of that summer holidays and like sitting in bed going like, oh my God, I got to go back to that place. It just felt like prison. And I know, like, I know not everybody has that experience. And look, I went through it. I'm okay now. I'm only a little bit messed up, you know, not totally. So it's not like it's a death sentence for everybody. But these are conversations we should be having, right? These absolutely are things that might sound controversial and crazy to people, but they're very real. They're grounded in reality. The statistics are there. The failing is obvious. And there's many, many people that are broken by the system. So we spent a lot of time talking about what is failing. So let's transition for the little bit here on, on, on the solution of homeschooling and, you know, 
what it actually is and maybe some of the things that people misunderstand or get wrong about homeschooling. Yeah, well, I think you alluded to this earlier when you talked about, you know, people, they're homeschooling, but they're still schooling. I think there's a lot of emphasis when people talk about homeschooling on the word, the school part mm -hmm. of the word. Um, and I think, you know, school is a noun and it's a verb. And a lot of people, when they think about exiting school, they only think about the noun part. They think, okay, we're going to leave school as a building and we're going to go elsewhere with our children. But they forget that, you know, if you're, you're, when you're breaking yourself free of the system, you're breaking yourself free of all of it. You don't have to go and replicate exactly what you do in the classroom at home. Uh, you've you've broken yourself free. It's like it's like getting out of prison, and you still follow the exact same schedule. Like you know, whatever time the lights shut off, you yeah. shut off your lights, and you sit alone in the dark, and you're caught. And it's like, no, you're free now. You can do whatever you want, but you just like don't know how because you don't have a model for it. So I think I've watched a lot of families homeschool in a lot of different ways. Again, there's a spectrum. You got the unschoolers. You got the very formal. Mm -hmm. We're just replicating everything that happens in public school. We've got the timer on our oven in the kitchen or whatever and we set it for 40 minutes and you do english and then at 10 o'clock we're going to yeah. switch and do math and i think you know you're, you're you're learning to the test and you're learning to make sure that you can you're reading this passage so you can pass the quiz at the end of the chapter and then it's okay if you forget everything that you've learned after because we're going to move on to the next mm. chapter like if you're educating your kids that way you're missing 95 percent of the point you've gotten out of the classroom part which is cool i guess but you're not you know, you're you're not radically rethinking, well, what should my kids' education actually be? Are the are the foundational principles of how we think about educating our kids, what are they based on in the first place? Like is this actually a a, a level of base assumptions about what an education ought to be that mm -hmm. I agree with? I think you have to take like a real uh kind of Descartes approach where you strip down everything you think you know and it's like, okay, like you know, Descartes in exploring philosophy is like the only thing I know for sure is that I'm thinking, mm. therefore I must exist. Um, and in the same way, I think you have to strip down. It's like, okay, I have a kid. And eventually that kid is going to be an adult. And that adult is going to need to know how to navigate the real world. What are the important steps between point A and point B? Mm. And you have to build that back up from the beginning. And I think if, if you're willing to ask those questions, and think about that. And yes, it's it's hard and it's a lot of it requires a lot of thinking and it's very scary because, again, if you're deviating from the normal path, it's terrifying. If mm. everyone's failing together, at least we're all failing together. Right. It's right. no one's fault. Yeah. But if you're failing on your own, even if you're being successful on your own, you still have to explain to people what on earth it is that you did and why you had the audacity to deviate from the norm. Yes. But if you're willing to ask those questions. I think you can start to develop a really phenomenal education for your kid. And I think people are unnecessarily scared of it too at times. Like it's, it's kind of hard to mess up actually. Like mm. if you're, this is, <laughs> sounds like a very radical statement, but we, we like radical ideas here. Mm -hmm. um, if you're teaching your kid the basics of, you know, they, they have basic literacy, basic numeracy, they understand the process of how to learn things, which is, the most fundamental meta skill for your kids to learn. And as a sidebar, school never teaches that. It just mm -hmm. teaches you how to listen and memorize and regurgitate. It doesn't teach you how to actually say, I have this question. I have this problem I need to solve. I have this uh, real world outcome that I want to figure out how to create. And so I need to learn. I need to figure out how to get to point from point A to point B. I have to figure out what information is missing. I have to figure out how to find it. 
I have to figure out how to integrate it so I understand it and I can perhaps embody it if there's a set of actions I need to take. And then I need to learn how to do the thing or answer the question in order to get the result I want. And then I have to rinse and repeat this process mm -hmm. again. It's like, okay, well then what comes after point B? Then there's C and how do we get from B to C? We do the same thing again. Um, that's just like a very fundamental human skill. That's how we went from, you know, living in caves to being here in this really awesome studio with yeah. high-tech equipment talking to people on the internet uh but school doesn't teach you that it just teaches mm -hmm. you the world is this all of these things exist and you have to figure out how like which piece of this world you find interesting maybe you're interested in cameras maybe you're interested in lighting maybe you're interested in farming like whatever and you learn how to just sort of like integrate into what already exists mm. and you learn how to operate the machinery of whatever piece of the world you're interested in but you never learn how to iterate upon it and so the people who do the iterating are they're just considered to be like outliers they're kind of crazy it's like there's this mad genius over here who's mm -hmm. designing the camera but don't don't worry about him he's over in the corner doing his thing like he's not important like you just need to learn how to operate the camera and you know the world needs operators and it needs builders but most people need to have some level of building mentality in order to be able to design a path of their own even if it's like well i want to learn how to operate cameras but like i kind of want to start like a camera operation business right. and maybe hire a couple other people and we start shooting for we become more self-directed we shoot for like different projects and like maybe we can like find this niche to specialize in that level of entrepreneurial thinking requires having a bit of a builder's mindset mm -hmm. um and most people benefit from having that but school never teaches you that it just teaches you how to follow the rules and figure out where in this pre-prescribed grid of options you best fit and then if you don't perfectly fit well you better just you know make sure you you shave down your corners and edges so that you fit in very nicely um and so if you start thinking about your kids education in that way it's like how do i teach my kid that fundamental skill of how to learn and iterate and think creatively pretty much everything else about their early education especially like up until sixth or seventh grade um mostly it's just filler because the kids right. need something to do all day while the parents are at yeah. work and everybody wants to look busy mm. but most homeschoolers i know only maybe they spend two or three hours a day maybe on school and the rest of the time the kids can play or be working in the kitchen with mom awesome. or be out in the real world or with their friends or whatever um but if you teach your kids those fundamental skills early on and then you encourage them, you create an environment for them where it's full of invitations to do mm -hmm. things that are useful and intellectually stimulating and educational for them. And you're modeling the behaviors that you want them to have. So you're reading books and you're asking questions and you're working on mm. projects and your kids see you doing those things and want to do them with you. If you do those things, I don't think you even have to worry about the curriculum side of you know, is my kid learning enough American history in fourth grade for them to be like really understand how their democracy or republic or whatever functions? Um, like, yeah, it's important to expose your kids to a lot of things. But I don't think you have to be super formal about mm -hmm. it. Um, I think a lot of parents get very stuck in the minutia of has my kid read enough books mm -hmm. about uh, world history or have they read enough American classics this year? for it to be considered like a good school year and they miss out on all of the meta stuff that's actually important that's informing everything else and is informing their child's ability to go fill in any gaps that they might have missed farther on down the road on their own time as is useful to them yeah i love that framework it's something 
I have a three and a half year old and one on the way and we're working in an unschool co-op kind of environment right now. And that map that you just laid is exactly my thought process on what I want to empower, encourage and, you know, be an example for. And at the same time, like that feeling of like, oh shit, that's a lot. Like what, what would you say to someone? Or maybe because you kind of answered what you would say to someone in the sense that maybe it's not as hard as you think it is. And maybe you're more capable than you know. You just don't know what you don't know yet, but there's tools now. So I guess my question would be, what would you say to someone who wants to do this? They're ready to do this, but they're feeling like that big old pressure, like this is all on me now. I've got to not mess up this little human. What what would you say to them and what resources can they rely on? Is there like, you know, we have the internet now. There's got to be some good stuff out there, right? As well to support them on this journey. What resources would you point them to? Yeah, there's so much stuff on the internet to the point that it's almost detrimental because it's overwhelming. Yeah. Like you have to sift through a lot of things to find the good stuff. I am a child of the internet age. I grew up with, YouTube. Uh, you know, I started homeschooling in 2003, graduated in 2015. YouTube was growing up with me. So I was able to use that as a resource. Google was my best friend. Mm -hmm. uh, like even just like internet based library catalogs that allow you to order the books that are most useful to what you're studying. Uh, super helpful. Um, so but there's there's so much out there to sift through. So I think you want to find as much as you can, you want to find curators who can kind of help help you figure out where to start there are a lot of people on the internet who are talking about the homeschooling experiences that they're navigating with their kids um i mean obviously come talk to me at rebel educator we awesome. share a ton yeah. of stuff we've built a really big community of people who are interested in this sort of thing who can help you on the path um but i think a lot of people are very shaming of parents who decide to homeschool like you have your own internal fears there's the the voice inside already that's saying well what if i'm going to mess up my kid mm -hmm. what if i'm going to you know what if what if my kid isn't going to be socialized well, yeah exactly yeah, well socialized or able to get a job what if they're mm -hmm. going to be awkward what if i'm going to miss out on this huge academic subject that i just mm -hmm. didn't think about but there's like some some magic secret thing that they're learning in school that they're just going to have this huge you know magic shape void in their ability to navigate the real world and they're going to fail at life and it's going to be all my fault like parents are legitimately afraid of that because yeah. like, like you know to my point earlier you know should you homeschool your kid even if you have to make sacrifices what's more important than your kid what's more important than your kid of course you're afraid of this it's the mm -hmm. biggest responsibility you'll ever have is helping to steward this person into adulthood but at the same time, there are going to be a lot of people who are going to prey on that and who are going to really dig into and feed into those fears um, and who are going to, you know, tell you that you're irresponsible yeah. for homeschooling your kid or that you don't have the right diploma or degree. So, of course, you're not qualified. Uh, don't listen to any of those people They're They are defensive because they either are products of the system and it's uncomfortable to admit that the system failed you um or maybe you know like i think you know my grandparents can be a tough one mm -hmm. actually because it's like well we put you through this system like are you saying that what we did wasn't good enough like it gets very emotionally charged yeah but also i'll post stuff on twitter and i'll get so much vitriol from uh like public school teachers or teachers unions people uh once in a while i'll post something that just starts to get circulated through all these yeah. different eddies on twitter and people are so angry at me for like they call me a homeschool apologist and they just uh -huh. think I'm so irresponsible for shilling this nonsense that parents can do this themselves but I mean if everybody did this they'd be out of a job so of, of, course, of course they're going to be 
pushing against this, but I think almost every parent is qualified to homeschool their children. Um, And I think almost every parent, like, yes, it's work. You have to put in the effort to make sure you understand what does your child need developmentally? How can you support them? uh, How do they need to be challenged? How do you make sure that they're learning in spite of whatever, you know, quirks and impediments they might have Mm -hmm. around the learning process? But if a parent is willing to put in the time, any parent can figure it out and no one knows your child better than you do. So love that you are in many senses more qualified than the sort of generic professional at the head of a classroom of 30 kids. No, I mean, there are amazing people working in the education system, but you know, your kid is one of 30 that they get in any given day or any given hour and they might care, but do they care as much as you do as the Mm. parent? So I think, you know, that alone makes parents highly qualified to be the stewards and custodians of their children's education. That is such a powerful reframe. I love that. I think, uh, couple of things were light bulbs were going off when you was talking there especially like the grandparents and the older heads because you'll often hear well i mean you did all the things that you, you you're not we we put you through the school system you ate all of that food you turned out all right and it's like well we hear that a lot you turned out okay but if we actually again just look at statistics look at things like diabetes obesity mental health disorders our okay is not okay Right. If you want what everybody else has got, do what everybody else has got. But that's sick. And it's not it's not aware. It's not awake. It's not conscious. It's not whatever you want to say that is. And you then have to become a rebel. You then have to become a radical. You have to be able to take the arrows in your back and keep walking. If everybody's going off the cliff that way, you're going to like the look like the crazy person going this way. But are you willing to sacrifice that, to look like the crazy person, to do what you know in your heart is right, to do what you trust? Like you said, you care more than anybody else about your child. And that that's such an empowering frame that that makes you the most qualified person for the job. And if you're even having this thought process of thinking about this, I think you can do it and you can figure out or you can create something that, you know, buffers against this why you figure out the then the next step, the game plan. So my last question for you, if somebody's listening to this and they're like, I'm gonna do it, but like not quite yet. Give me give me a year or something. Like if if I can't homeschool now, what should I be doing as like a, a big thing outside of that just to protect my kid and have them become a, a free thinker? Yeah. So first of all, if homeschooling's not on the table for whatever reason, but you do want to pull them out of public school, there are a plethora of options to choose from that are, you know, f- there are phenomenal schools out there that people are building that you can look at. Um, there are local micro schools. Mm-hmm. There are amazing online options that people are building. There are historically vetted options like Montessori that delivers amazing educational educations to kids. So I would look there if you are open to pulling your kids out of school and it's the logistics of homeschooling that are not on the table. Um, you know, your kids could get phenomenal outcomes from a lot of different paths besides just being at home all day. Um, if that's not on the table, then I think you want to think as much as possible about undoing the damage that's occurring in school so you know kids are they're being schooled while they're in the classroom all day as much as you can you want to be de-schooling your Mm. kids you want to be undoing some of the the mental paradigms that your kids are being in inculcated with Uh, i would highly recommend reading john taylor gatto's uh dumbing us down which is a phenomenal book gatto was a public school teacher in the city of New York for 30 years. He won teacher of award, a teacher of the, the teacher of the year award 
and wrote an acceptance letter that he published in the the New York Times in which he also resigned from his job because mm. he said that you know if you can find if you can find an in, a profession in which I can not damage the children while I'm working with them then I'm open to it but I feel like I'm harming children in the name of doing my job and I can't justify doing this anymore and he wrote an amazing book wow. about uh, basically dumbing us down as the seven sort of subliminal messages that school is teaching us like the seven paradigms about how the world works that we're picking up without even realizing it just by the nature of the structure of the system. It's a phenomenal book. Every parent should read it. There's another really great book called Mediocrity by my friend mm. Connor Boyack. I just read and that. It's Angelis. It's amazing. Um, that one, I think the subtitle is something like 40 Ways Faulty the ways, School System's yeah, yeah. Our Children. So that's another must read for parents. And then I would highly recommend... Um, don't Tell Me I Can't by Cole Summers, mm -hmm. who was a 14-year-old rancher and unschooler in Utah who uh, owned his own ranch, had bought and flipped a house, had like financed his own tractor, was running multiple businesses, and he wrote an autobiography about his unschooling journey. And I think that one's just like such a paradigm shatterer mm -hmm. for parents. I think every parent in the planet should read it. Whenever I, a friend is having a kid, I buy them a copy awesome. because I think everybody should read it. So I would read books like that. Um, and I would focus on, like, how do you maintain the innate assets that your child already has? Like, we're hardwired to learn. We've survived as a species because we know how to learn, because we are curious about the world and because we understand how to gain the information that we need in order to navigate it effectively. School crushes those innate things. Mm -hmm. And I think your job as a parent is to be their staunchest defender. So how do you help your child maintain their natural curiosity? How do you feed it? How do you facilitate their quirky project ideas and help them start a business on the weekends? How do you like model these behaviors for your kids too? Like if you don't read much, maybe you should be reading in front of your kids and mm. showing them that reading is normal. Maybe you should read aloud as a family. Maybe you should encourage your kids writing abilities by maybe writing a chain story together or something like that um, and help your kids chase the natural curiosities and creativities that they have that school is not giving them a space for so that they can you know they can be hopefully not have these things completely crushed by yeah. the system so that when you pull them out these things are still intact for them to build upon powerful powerful i think yeah, if you can keep that thread just just long enough so they can grab it and then you can encourage them to pull it not all hope is lost like yes i pulled myself out of it the thread was still there i found it again i pulled and it's all unraveling in a beautiful way so i love that position of like be the staunch protector and advocate for them you know these things are happening you might not agree with all of them but you also have an enormous role in their lives to be the example to lead them where you can so what a powerful way to kind of wrap this conversation up but before we go we do have one caller on the line we got a, a texas native Ooh. called tiffany are you are you with us tiffany what question do you have for us today let's powwow hi guys thank you so much for having me i want to start by saying i am just so excited and grateful that we're having this conversation i think it's so important for our children and the future and my question is, I'm a single mom who works full time. And so I'd love to know what your opinion is on homeschool co-ops. It's something that I've leaned on in the past and I've had some trouble finding one that really has stable ground. And so I'd love to hear just your experience with them and what you'd recommend for someone who's interested in potentially starting their own. 
I love homeschool cops. I was part of a number of them growing up. Um, they're a mixed bag. Sometimes it's a great fit. Sometimes it's not a fit either for ideological reasons, cultural reasons. Uh, I've been part of co-ops that have had a lot of drama and fallen apart mm -hmm. and schisms and become new co-ops. Uh, so it's definitely, it can be a bit anarchistic. It can be a bit tough. Um, if you're interested in starting your own, I don't know where in Texas you're based and I don't know what type of you know community that you already have for of, of other homeschoolers around you. If you're in a place like Austin or Dallas that has a really big collection of homeschoolers already, it can be a lot easier. Uh, social media makes it really easy to find mm. people who share your values and your goals. Um, so I might look at uh, if you can find local Facebook groups yeah. for homeschooling, I think that would be a really great place to start or moms groups in general. Um, I think, you know, a co-op doesn't have to be large for it to be really beneficial for the kids, both socially and academically. And also, you know, if you're a single mom who's looking for support as well, like, you know, you can trade off childcare duties while you're also working. You can, you know, if you have a small group, you can create sort of like a homeschooling pod. I would mm. look up specifically the homeschooling pod movement because it's slightly different from a co-op. A co-op can be a little bit bigger. It can be um, like, you know, maybe we meet up once a week and we're all kind of pooling resources to hire a Spanish teacher and a drama teacher and a science teacher, whereas a pod can be a little bit more intimate. It's kind of like a micro school idea. Um, so I might look for homeschooling pods in your area. Uh, you should also DM me on Twitter because if you're in Texas, I have a lot of people in the Rebel Educator Network who nice. are in Texas. So I can put out a tweet about homeschoolers in Texas and maybe you can connect with some people that way as well. Uh, those are the first, that's where I would start, but shoot me a message too. I'm happy to talk more specifics about the situation that you're in as well. See if there's anywhere else more particular I can point you depending on where in the state you are. I might know some people too to connect you with. That's super cool. Awesome, thank you so much. That was so helpful. Absolutely. Thanks for calling in, Tiffany. That was that was great. And I'm yeah, nodding along because that's what we're learning right now. Like I said, three and a half year old, four year old in the new year. So I guess closer to four now, which is crazy. But we're part of a co-op and all of those benefits that you said. And I can potentially see, you know, like, you know, changes as well, not being wedded to anything and not like, you know, falling on the loyalty sort of is not working anymore. Keep your mind open, be willing to pivot. Uh, what was been what's been really cool for us in the homeschool co-op because my wife's had a, a particularly pivotal role in forming this with the group is she's also been able to not only socialize Jai and get in with people and, and focus on a, a de-schooling and unschooling co-op but the she's found friends because they, they naturally attract like-minded people too and I know sometimes Tiffany if you're a single mom and you're out there and you're working and you're busy it can sometimes be hard to have your pod as well in your circle and by virtue of these things being kind of self-qualifying you might find some of your awesome people there as well so you're doing the best thing for you and you and you kid and that's a win-win so hannah thank you very much for joining us this was a lot of fun this is something that i've been like learning more and more about over the last couple of years and i think you do such a good job of laying it all out and articulating it and you're a fine example of what a well put together homeschooler looks like you're not this crazy lady you're sharp as a tack you're not socially awkward you're doing the thing you're out there you're spreading a good message in a very in a very cool nuanced way that is uh is, a, is approachable i think so tell people where they can go to keep up with you and find you tell them a little bit you host a podcast as well and have these conversations so give the people what they want yeah so if if you liked this conversation uh like Steve said i have a podcast of my own it's called the hannah franklin podcast 
I would highly recommend giving it a listen. For the conversation that we just had specifically, I would recommend starting with my episode with Connor Boyack, who is the author of the book that we just mentioned, Mediocrity. Uh, we talk a lot about homeschooling specifically, and he also has some really great frameworks for thinking about homeschooling that he lays out in that interview. He was, We had a fantastic conversation, so I would start there. Um, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my personal Twitter is at Hannah Frankman. I also run the Rebel Educator account. I am the face of it, even though the face on the actual account is Socrates, because, <laughs> you know, the, the original Rebel Educator. Um, but we have a really big community there that you can connect with. You can both DMs are open on both accounts. So you're welcome to message me. And then everything else is linked from Twitter. So Rebel Educator, we have a website full of content. Um, you can find a bunch of articles about like whatever part of this conversation you found interesting, how to find homeschooling resources, the history of the education system. We've got it all. Love it. Um, and then from my personal Twitter, you can link to some of my writing on other platforms as well. Uh, but yeah, if you find my personal Twitter, everything else is linked from that. So go. that's where I would start. Oh, Instagram people, I guess. My podcast yeah. also has an Instagram. So at Hannah Franklin podcast on Instagram. Uh, I feel like I'm probably forgetting some platforms, but those two will link you to everything else, the Instagram and the Twitter. Amazing. Thank you very much. And fam, thank you for tuning into this conversation. I know it's a little bit adjacent to our usual conversation, but you guys get this. We're trying to question the norms and the narratives. And I think a lot of you uh, wanted to have families one day. You might be parents. We're not here to shame. We're not sit here to say anybody's doing anything wrong. We're just here to have conversations and present an alternative view as we're doing for health. Like you were saying, when you get attacked online, we get attacked all the time for our dangerous misinformation around health and nutrition. But we believe that it's true and we believe we can validate that. And then we're seeing hundreds of thousands of people turn their life around because of it. So it's just a natural extension of that fascinating conversation. Thank you very much. Good job. And friends, we'll see you next week. Peace out. Bye bye. All right, friends, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Radical Health Radio. We got a fresh new podcast for you every Wednesday. If you enjoyed the show, consider liking, subscribing, reviewing, and rating us on your podcast platform. It helps to spread this message of radical health. We'll see you next week.